0: Amen, friends. If you would grab your Bibles, open up to 1 Peter chapter 4. Uh, we are just uh, three Sundays away from finishing our series on 1 Peter. And at this time, I'm going to invite all the kids out this side door to my left with Miss Joy. You guys will be back in time for the close of the service. Have a great time at Jumpstart and see you soon. We will miss you. And we're looking at 1 Peter chapter 4 this morning. We're going to go through verses 12 through 19. And then uh, we've got two more Sundays after today in which we'll finish 1 Peter, and I am super excited about our next sermon series, but I'm not going to tell you what it is because I don't want to scare you. So let's look at 1 Peter chapter 4 this morning, starting in verse 12 through 19. Christian, hear the word of the Lord to his people. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice While doing good. Friends, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God will endure forever. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Would you be seated? Let's pray as we dive into 1 Peter chapter 4. Uh, Father, we ask this morning that we would entrust ourselves to you as Christ our Savior entrusted himself to you, even while he went to the cross for us. Uh, Father, we pray that we would glean exactly what your Holy Spirit would have for us this morning in your word. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, well, the sermon this morning is titled Trust in Suffering, uh, which, you know, shocker, could also be the title of like every sermon in 1 Peter, <laughs> uh, because uh, if you've been with us for a few weeks, you know that the theme of 1 Peter gets resonated basically in every passage, right? Uh, we're calling this series Sojourners, because um, almost every passage in 1 Peter is reminding us that if we follow Jesus... The path of Jesus is going to lead us to uh, rejection in this world, suffering in this life, yet we must not be willing to compromise the truth and righteousness. We must instead continue to suffer along with Christ, stand for God's truth, and be faithful to the end, right? That's pretty much every passage in 1 Peter, right? We are sojourners and we seek the city that is to come. Uh, but today especially, Peter is sort of wrapping up his letter and sort of taking us to a crescendo, sort of the highest points of all of these themes that he's been making uh, for a, you know, a past few weeks uh, that we've been studying. All of this is sort of coming to a head, and again, the theme is trust and suffering. And, uh, you know, when I thought about that, I was reminded of uh, my friend Douglas. Uh, so, uh, you know, we have Doug who uh, plays the piano and leads in worship. I'm not talking about that Doug. You don't know this Doug. Uh, this is a different Doug. Uh, But what you need to know about my friend Doug uh, was that when he was in high school, you know, where are the high schoolers at right now? This guy, Douglas, was in high school, and uh, he didn't know what to expect, and one day he went to go see the doctor. And, you know, he was growing up like a normal kid, well-adjusted, in a loving and, you know, somewhat normal family who was kind to one another. And uh, Douglas was growing up in upstate New York, and uh, like a normal kid, he didn't know what to expect when he met with the doctor. But eventually, he ended up meeting a different kind of doctor, a doctor called an oncologist, which, if you don't know, is a cancer doctor. And uh, Douglas recounted to me uh, that when the oncologist, the cancer doctor, walked into the office, he had bad news for Douglas. And what the oncologist said to him, which many of you may have experienced yourselves or have family members, is the oncologist came in and said, Douglas, I have terrible news for you. And he didn't even tell him he had cancer. Douglas knew immediately what the oncologist was going to tell him. But you know what the oncologist did next? He sat in a chair, rolled straight to Douglas, who was sitting down, and he placed his hand on Douglas's knee and said, Douglas, this is terrible news, but we're going to get through it together. And sure enough, the oncologist saw him into remission, and Douglas is now a happy old man who survived his bout with lymphoma when he was a teenager. But what was powerful to me about that story is there is a way to tell people bad news and to tell them that they're going to suffer in this life. But for that oncologist who was a great doctor, who I know all the doctors in our church and watching online want to be a great doctor like this, they knew it wasn't just about sharing bad news with people. It was about sharing suffering and then walking with someone through that in a very real way, which for Douglas was as simple as a hand on the knee. And I guess the reason I share that story is because we're talking about suffering in this passage, real suffering. And many of us are going through real suffering, and many of us are aware that more suffering may come, especially for Christians in our lifetimes. But what Peter wants us to know is that Peter is sort of sitting down (laughs) with us and saying, I'm talking about real suffering. But what Peter is doing is he's also, you know, rolling over to us in his, you know, chair, and he's placing his hand on our knee, and he's saying, but you're not going to suffer alone. But the great news is not that Peter is going to walk with us through suffering. What Peter has is even better than anything any medical doctor could share, just by themselves. Because what Peter shares is he looks at a church and he says, I've got terrible news for you. (laughs) Suffering is coming. But here's the good news. The spirit of glory and of God rests on you, and he will see you through the end. Who is your hope in life and death? Christ alone. Christ alone. And as Paul tells Christians, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, right. So that's the tone that Peter is giving Christians. Suffering is real. You personally are going to experience it, but here's what you need to know about suffering. Here's what you need to glean from the Word, and know, Christian, that you truly are not alone. That the Holy Spirit of God, uh, the, the the God of glory, rests upon you, and He will see you through this. Right? So this is, the, this is a beginning of a theology of suffering. Right? This is a beginning of how Christians see their day-to-day life, Right, the everyday normal life of oncologists and sickness and sadness and death and decay. Right? The Bible is not divorced from your reality or your hardship. It is right there in it with you. Right? That's the beauty of Christianity. We serve a God who moved into the neighborhood, who tabernacled among us, who tasted death, who went to the shadow of the valley of death for us so that we would not have to veer, fear the valley of the shadow of death. All right, so with that, what do we need to hear? Let's go. We're going to go through this sort of just verse by verse. So with that in mind, you know, imagine the Holy Spirit of God placing his hand on your knee saying, Christian, we're going to get through this, right? But it's bad news, right? So let's go for that, right? Uh, verse 12, let's read that together. Beloved, do not be surprised. You see it right there in your lap in front of you. Hopefully it's on the screen if you don't have a Bible. Uh, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Well, the first thing I want you to focus on in that verse is that very first word, beloved. Right? It's easy to gloss over that word, but it's such a profound word because yes he's going to give us some bad news about suffering. You know, full disclosure, anyone who tries to live a godly life will suffer, right? That's one of the promises in the Bible, right? Uh, I never see that one knitted into a pillow for some reason though. But as he's going to bring up, as he's going to bring up suffering, the first thing that Peter wants to remind you of and to remind me of, Christian, is that we are what? You are beloved. You are the recipient of the great love of God, That is the beginning framework of suffering in this life, right? Ephesians, uh, which uh, Doug read earlier uh, in our call to worship, Ephesians goes on and it says this. It says, before we knew Christ, we were children of wrath, right? we, we deserved wrath. We weren't on board with God and we were like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the what? The great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. You see, friends, the great news of the gospel, right, is we survey God who loves us. And our foundation, right, the, the, the solid foundation that we build our lives upon, the rock that we build our house upon when the storms come, is nothing except the love of God to us as we see it in the face of Jesus Christ. So when you think about your suffering, the first thing he wants to remind you of is the thing that should be flashing through your mind when you think about your particular experiences of suffering is that you are beloved. You are beloved. You are the recipient of God's great love with which he loves you. And, uh, you know, if you're anything like me, it's sometimes easier to tell people that God loves them than it is to believe that God loves me. Anyone else here struggle with that? You could tell your kids all day long that God loves them, but do you believe that God loves you? Well, what Christianity has the audacity to say is God's love for you is not an indication of how righteous we are. It's not a measure of how many good deeds we do. The measure is actually the measure of the fullness of the stature of Jesus Christ. (laughs) He loves us because he is love. And he loves us in Christ. Not because of our good deeds, but because of Christ's good deeds for us. It's our union with Christ. His Spirit, our Spirit, the Spirit of Christ lives in me. And now I live the rest of my life in this body by the Spirit of God. This is what it means... To frame, right? It's like it's like you know. um, Have you noticed I have glasses now? I now know who is asleep and who is awake. Be very afraid. Be very afraid. Okay. I don't know for people watching online, but I hope that's true. But uh, I got some new glasses, and now I see things more clearly, right? And and I think when it comes to suffering, we have this tendency. We don't want to look at suffering. We want. We don't want to see it in high def, right? But for a Christian, the glasses that we put on is the lens of the love of Christ. Jesus loves me, therefore, I really can talk about suffering right now because I see it through the lens of God's love for me. Right? Okay, so what does he go on to say? Well, beloved, that's quite the extended (laughs) commentary on the word beloved. But that's you, Christian. And he goes on and he says, Don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Well, what is this fiery trial? Well, basically what Peter is saying is he's saying expect hardship and suffering in this life. We live in a world that has fallen into sin, that uh, is imbued with a spiritual reality that includes demonic evil forces that assail us. You know, our, our battle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers and the principalities, right? We have Satan prowling around like a prowling lion, right? We have all of these things that make our world fallen and broken, Right? And so we should expect, not for ease in this life, we should expect what? We should expect hardship, right? And uh, how, many, how many problems in your life would you say, you know, arguments with your spouse, arguments with your in-laws, arguments with your kids are because of misunderstood expectations, right? Anyone ever have that in experience, right? It's when you have the wrong expectations that you get real bent out of shape, isn't it? Right, it's when we have right expectations that we better anticipate hardship. So what Peter is saying is saying, don't anticipate an easy life. Don't anticipate the world to heap all kind of praise because you're a Christian. Uh, in fact, Jesus says in Luke six twenty six, "Woe to you when the world speaks well of you." Right? We should expect fl- a friction with this world. Right? So woe to you when pe- when everybody thinks you're great. Right? I mean, if the world won't reject Jesus, why would they? you know, except the people that follow in his steps, right? So there's a, there's this sobering reality, right? That we live in this fallen world, right? And so we shouldn't be surprised, you know, we should be like, well, what's the Lord doing? You know, um, you know, the, the, I guess one of the ways that this plays out in my life is I try never to be surprised at the fallenness in this world, right? So if anyone comes to me confessing some kind of sin, or I learn something about somebody, you know, I don't go, whoa, what? No never. I never thought you would do that. In reality, I think, of course you did that. Of course you did that, because you're on the wrong side of eternity. We all struggle with sin. We're just really good at putting masks on, right? Because I expect, you know, as a, you know, when I see a child, I see the image of God, you know, and you know what else I see? A little covenant viper in diapers, right? It's also what I see, you can have a complex worldview, right? There's the goodness of God in the image, right? And then there's the old man of sin that's still there that wants to tell you what? No. And he wants to lie, right? It's a little covenant viper in a diaper, right? Doesn't mean you don't love him. Christ loved us while we were enemies, right? It's the complexity. So that's how you see life. There's goodness in this world. There's the beauty of the sunrise. There's the beauty of a rainbow, of mountains, of hiking. you know. And then there's also this evil side of life, right? And so why are we surprised when we suffer for Christ, right? Especially when Jesus tells us to expect it over and over and over again all throughout the Bible. So what is then, uh, you know, Peter getting at when he talks about this fiery trial? You see that in your passage right there? He says, you know, don't be surprised at the fiery trial, so we need to expect hardship. But what is the fiery trial? See it right there in verse 12? Well, uh, you know, uh, Peter's writing in a time in the 60s A.D., and from everything we know from church history by 64 AD the emperor at this time Nero is going to start the first mass persecution of Christians in Rome and you know famously this is where we hear those awful stories about the Christians who are sewn into the skins of animals and then thrown into the Colosseum to be eaten alive by wild animals and this is also where Nero used to have parties and he would use Uh, you know, the the human pyres of Christians to light up the night, right? So Christians were literally being burned alive while the emperor Nero, the the crazy, awful emperor Nero, was doing awful things, right? And so Peter hasn't lived to this because Peter is going to die in that persecution by Nero. Uh, So, you know, think about when Peter's telling us to honor the emperor. Remember, that's who he has in mind, the psychopath who eventually is going to kill Peter, And yet Peter's still telling us, honor the emperor, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor everyone, right? Peter is willing to embrace suffering to the point where he ends up uh, being put to death during this uh, time of persecution, right? So is that sort of what Peter's talking? Is that the fiery trial, you know, when these Christians are burned alive? Is that what he's talking about? Well, I think it's a little early, you know. I don't know if that's really the fiery trial he's sort of anticipating, uh, you know, you could just say a fiery trial is just like a metaphor, right? It's just, it's hardship. Uh, but I think actually if you pull this, you know, uh, this idea of a, of a fire and a testing, if you pull it out of like, you know, Proverbs 17 or Malachi chapter 3, the Old Testament uses fire in a different sort of way. It doesn't mean as a, simply as a metaphor or as like literally being burned alive. In Malachi chapter 3, it talks about a refiner's fire, And that we pass into a refiner's fire. And we are sort of like silver or gold, which is placed into a fire. And as it heats up, the dross sort of removes the silver. That makes sense? And so I think what Peter's getting at is that we are going to experience suffering in this life. But we need to remember that we are doing it with the Spirit of God. We are following in the steps of Christ. And the judgment we may experience in this life is not the condemnation of God. What it is, is like we're like this hunk of silver, this mixture of, of a, a core of silver with some extra dross, and he's placing us into a fire so that everything except silver leaves it. Uh, you know, there's a, there's, a famous, um, there's a famous preaching metaphor about this where, you know, supposedly a guy went up to a silversmith, you know, a guy who makes silver for a living. And, you know, this guy says, well, how do you know when... All of the dross is out of the silver. You know, how long, how do you you know how long to cook it for? And when do you know when you finally get totally pure silver, right? Do you know the story? What does the silver smith say? He says, I know it's pure gold when I pull it out of the fire and I can see my face reflecting in the silver. And that's when I know it's pure, right? And it's a beautiful image, Christian, for what I think the Lord does with us. He puts us in a refining fire, not to punish us, not to condemn us, but so that everything except Christ would sort of melt away. Does that make sense? And that, Christian, is how we start to see suffering. The things that we do in this life, the sufferings that we have, are meant to remove everything but Christ from our lives. Remember, a few weeks ago, Peter says that he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. And what he means by that is eventually when we suffer enough, at the end of our suffering, all we really want is a deeper relationship with the Lord and to invest in the lives of people. Everything else is dross. Everything else passes away, right? Your favorite pair of jeans, guess what? Anybody remember? You probably don't fit into them anyway right now, and you're going to throw them out or give them to goodwill one day. The things that we have our relationship with the Lord and the people in whom we invest. Right? Everything else is dross that's going to go away. Make sense? You know, so the, the Christian understanding of suffering then ties into this idea of testing. Not that God is like giving us a graded test, but testing in the sense that it's a hunk of silver being put into a fire to test and get all the stuff out that's not the silver. So um, you know, when you think about your sufferings, I just got really loud in my head. Did that happen to you? Have I been off this whole time? Has my microphone been off? Great. You know, when I think about suffering and hardship, you know, whether that's, you know, health stuff, family stuff, work stuff, you know, demonic activity, whatever your suffering is uh, in this life, Christian, I think... the, the turn that you need to take, you know, I think about your suffering, is you need to take a different mental idea. You know, you've got to tell yourself to think and contemplate about something different. Number one, Jesus is alive. He is on the throne. You live in a world in which Jesus is king, and he is coming back. Amen. Amen. Number two, your suffering is meant to make you more like him, Right? You can take the suffering that we experience, and you can use it to sort of chisel away everything that isn't Christ in you. And really, you know, because you live in a world where Jesus is alive, you don't have to fear your suffering. In fact, you don't have to fear anything. Jesus says, do not fear anything. Don't even fear people who can kill your body. Jesus makes almost a joke, and he says, if you're going to fear anything, fear the guy who can cast you into hell. (laughs) Why are you worried about people who can kill your body? If you're going to fear anything, fear the Lord. So when you think about your suffering, keep those ideas in mind. And then I want you to push it one step further, okay? And if you believe Jesus is alive, and if you believe suffering can make you more like him, then you need to understand that your hardship is actually the opportunity for your life to be completely transformed. Completely transformed. Think about it this way. Um, my buddy, Dr. Bob Burns, did a PhD years ago at the University of Georgia. You know, go dogs, right? And his PhD was in education. And he studied what was the number one educator on the planet. And he didn't want to just study sort of like Western education. He wanted to study what do human beings made in the image of God, what's the number one educator? Is it primary school No elementary teachers want to say amen to that one? (laughs) There we go. Is it middle school? Is it high school? Is it college? Is it an apprenticeship? Is it your family? Uh, You know what he found and basically what his dissertation was? What was the number one educator across every continent, across every culture? Hardship. Not just experience. Hardship. Think about the defining moments in your life where you really made a turn. It was when you were going through a season of utter difficulty and you realized what I'm doing is not working. George Matheson, who was this old hymn writer from the 1800s, he went blind when he was 18. He was gonna marry this girl and then she broke up with him because she didn't want to marry a blind man. And he never got married. Uh, he, He wrote hymns until he passed away. Um, he wrote a great hymn called, Oh, Love That Will Not Let Me Go, if you know that song. George Matheson this a great hymn writer from the 1800s. He thought a lot about suffering, as you could imagine. And uh, he wrote these words. He said, ask the great ones of the Bible, you know, those, those, like the patriarchs, the leaders in the Bible, ask them what has been the spot of their prosperity, and they will say, it was the cold ground on which I was lying. Think of Abraham. The turning point was Mount Moriah. Think of Joseph. The turning point for him was in the dungeon. Moses, his name means he was like plucked out of a basket because people tried to kill him as a child. Ruth lost her family, and her land was a land of toil. David was persecuted by King Saul, and his songs were given to him when? David wrote his songs in the night. Job when he finally heard from God, God answered him in the whirlwind. Peter will always remember when he sank into the sea because he doubted Christ. And then Matheson goes on. You know, I'm all pulling this from him. Matheson said, now consider the Son of God, Jesus himself. From the cold ground, the Gethsemane ground, there he received his scepter. You see, friends, it is a it is a lens. It is a way of seeing your hardship as an opportunity to grow more like Jesus. He suffered in this life. I will suffer. And I can either kick against the goads or I can believe Jesus is alive. And he's actually forming me more and more into his image. So I'm not going to fear my hardships. I'm not going to fear my trials. I'm not going to fear the oncologist. These are opportunities for me to grow in trust in the midst of my suffering. You know, I think God speaks to us in a lot of different ways, and I think there's a lot of profound truth in that the soil that new life has to grow out of is dead, rich earth. Out of the dead, dark night of suffering, new life grows, right? That's the best thing your garden needs is rich, dead soil, (laughs) decomposing soil. Friends, could it be that new life springs out of suffering. Let's go on. Verse 13. We'll, we'll, we'll go faster, don't worry. Although it is a sermon about suffering. All right, verse 13. <laughs> but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Right? So rejoice, Christ is returning. And then uh, let's pause right there and just, you know, remember live with the end in mind, right? what is the end game? Christ is returning. That you begin with the end goal and then you reverse engineer your life towards that, right? It is not what is God's will for my life. It's how am I giving my life for God's will? God has revealed the mystery of ages. He he has given me gospel priorities. I need to use my life and my resources and my talents for the thing that God has revealed are his priorities, right? You use your intellect for God's priorities, You oversee your employees in the way that God would want you to care for them. You use your finances to achieve the Lord's ends, right? It's not what is God's will for my life. It's how am I giving my life, my things, to the revealed will of God. And all this other stuff, you know, if you go to Oregon or Oregon State, that doesn't matter. Right? What matters is, are you going to college with the Spirit of God to be a good witness, a faithful presence, right? Can God be glorified if you're a beaver or a duck? Of course he can. But are you going there to be a light and salt to the world? You know, should you be the oncologist or should you be the pediatrician? You know, follow the Lord, love Jesus, and whatever you choose to do, work at it with all of your might, right? Right? That's that's the Christian understanding. God's already told me how to care for people. He's told me to love my enemies even. Therefore, I'm going to use everything I have towards that end because I'm going to live with the end in mind, right? Christ is returning. I'm going to have to give an account for everything I've done in this body, whether good or evil, right? So I'm going to live with the end in mind. And then he goes on and he says in verse 14, if you're insulted in the name or for the name of Christ, you are blessed because what? The spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And you may have missed this, but this is why learning about cross-references are really cool. Okay, so if you look in your uh, Bible, sometimes there'll be these like tiny little minuscule letters like K or L or M or N-O-P. And what those are is those are showing you times where passages in the Bible are actually referring to other passages in the Bible. They're sort of echoing each other. You know, so it's like, wait a second. So Peter is not just coming up with these words. He's actually sort of making an allusion, a reference to something else in the Bible. And actually that verse right there that the Spirit of God rests upon you in your sufferings, that is an allusion actually to the book of Isaiah. And it says that the Messiah will come, that the the branch of David will come one day and he will suffer for his people. He'll be pierced for our transgressions. But in Isaiah, it also says that the Spirit of God will rest upon him. And what's amazing about that, then, I know this is getting kind of deep into the, into the Bible, but try to make the leap with me. Isaiah says that the Spirit of God will rest on the Messiah. Right? That's in the Old Testament, before Christ, before Jesus ever walked on the earth. The Old Testament says the Spirit of God will rest on the Messiah. And then Peter who lived during Jesus's life, he says now, and the same Spirit of God who rests on Jesus, now rests on you, Christian. What is true of Christ in many ways is true of you. His righteousness is credited to your account. God treats you as if you had the very righteous deeds of Christ. He took the punishment that you deserved, and the life you now live in the body, Christ lives with you. His spirit, your spirit, they're like this, you know? Think about it like when you get married, and the kids want hot chocolate, and they go to mom, and mom says, no, what do the kids do? They go to dad, and what does dad say if he's wise? What did your mother say? And why do you say that? Because me... And mom, we're like that, right? Whatever she says, goes, right? Whatever Sarah, your wife, says to do, do it, right? Whatever the Spirit of God says, that's what I want to do. The Holy Spirit resides in me. I'm not Jesus, but His Spirit dwells within me, and we're like this. I want to obey Him, right? What's true of Christ, the Spirit of God rests on Him, it rests on you. Isn't that beautiful? You know, wherever you go, you and I, we are not alone. All right, let's keep going. So verse 15, he goes on and he says, But, important disclaimer, if you're going to suffer in this life, you can't suffer or expect God to be pleased if you suffer for your violence, right? If you're a murderer or if you're a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. You know, of course, what Peter is saying is he's saying you need to sort of step back and reflect some on your suffering. Am I suffering right now because of Christ and my testimony for Him? Or am I suffering because of my own sin and my own foolishness? You know, sometimes I make a bunch of stupid mistakes and I get in trouble, as I should. And I don't think, oh, I'm suffering for Christ. I'm suffering because I'm foolish. (laughs) I'm suffering because I made a mistake, right? I'm suffering because I sinned. That's what Peter's saying. You know, step back and i don't know i can't speak to every one of you but step back with some honesty some self-reflection some humility in christ and say am i suffering right now because i'm actually trying to stand for christ and to exhibit christ like behavior you know being meek being humble being a peacemaker you know all those things in the beatitudes that jesus says we should be or am i suffering because i'm just simply you know insufferable <laughs> you know if you don't know ask your wife she'll be sure to tell you all right You know, Peter, again, his concern is that Christians, we not be, you know, rampant lawbreakers, defiant for defiance sake. You know, obviously we renounce violence or deception. We shouldn't meddle with things. You know, I mean, meddling is such a a broad category for Peter, you know. But there is that sense of, you know, as a Christian, we really just, you know, as Paul says, we want to make it our ambition in life to lead a quiet life and attend to our own business and work with our own hands. You know, that that is plenty good, right, to lead a quiet life and work with our own hands. Right. That's our strategy. All right. And of course, he goes on in verse 16, says, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. And what that in that name means is he's saying if someone derides you for your following with Christ, instead of like letting that sink in, wear it as a badge of honor. And that may not make sense to you, but uh, what you have to understand, uh, if you don't know this already, is that in the, in the times that the New Testament was being written, Christian was not a compliment. Christian was sort of a derogatory term that people would say about Christians. You know, can you think of, you know, words where uh, somebody would call a group of people by a bad name or some, you know, kind of deplorable idea, and then there's sort of this ironic humor that they then take that name gladly upon themselves? See, Christian appears in the Bible, but originally, according to the book of Acts, they said that they were followers of the way. You know, Acts, what the Acts says, they called themselves followers of the way, you know, since Jesus is the way. And people started, oh, you know, you're just a Christian, which in that, you know, language just meant like a little Christ. Oh, you're just trying to be a little Christ. You know, it was derogatory, you know, but what Peter says is he says, take that on. Don't be ashamed of that title. If people are going to deride you, don't be ashamed to be associated with Jesus. Wear that name, uh, not with human pride, but boast in the Lord. Say, yes, I am a Christian. You know, there's this, there's this irony, right, that we miss that that was used in a derogatory, mean way. And yet we take it and we say, yeah, I, I do want to be like Christ. I'll take that. You know, it's similar, I guess, in some ways when we wear cross necklaces. You know, like I'm, I'm all for cross necklaces. I don't wear one. But if you think about what the cross represents, it's one of the most violent ways for someone to die. It's also a sign of Jesus' utter humiliation. It's utter humiliation. It's his utter rejection of this world. Uh, it's, it's his betrayal. It's this sign of deep humility, that the God of this world would humble himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. So, so the beauty of wearing a cross necklace is it's meant to remind you and me to be humble like Christ, to accept the rejection of this world, and to entrust ourselves to him who judges justly, right? So there's an irony when I see them all decorated with like 10,000 diamonds, you know, it's a bloody way of dying, and it's meant to hearken to humility, right? That's what it means to accept the name of Christian, right? It's, it's meant to hearken us to say, man, I aspire. I am a Christian, and I aspire to be a Christian. Does that make sense? It's both true and aspirational. Now, Peter warns us in verse 17. He goes on. He says, For it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who don't obey the gospel of God? And then he quotes from Proverbs, and he says, And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what about those of the ungodly and the sinner? What will become of them? And I think what Peter's warning us is this idea, this sort of sobering reality, you know, that there will be a judgment day for every one of us. There is a judgment. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account what we have done in our body, whether good or evil. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 right? So we all have to stand before the judge. But this verse is not telling Christians. Uh, I don't think Peter's point is he's saying God is like judging and condemning you. Uh, the best understanding of that word judge there means simply just the work of a judge. You know, ju- the God is going to do what a judge does, which is he's going to separate the good from the bad, the righteous from the unrighteous. Uh, in Matthew 25, it's the sheep and the goats, right? And what Peter is warning Christians here, of is there is going to be an assessment, right? There are many people who will cry out, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these good deeds in your name? And Jesus will say what? Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, right? You know, I think the easiest way to understand that is, you know, to ask yourself, to take seriously that judgment of God, you know, are, are you, uh, am I, am I simply a Jesus admirer? Do I just admire him sort of from a distance, or am I a Jesus follower? (laughs) Do you see the difference? I mean, followers admire, but is there a distance between you and Christ? Does the Spirit of God reside in you? So, Christian, this is not meant to cause us fear because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ, but it is a sobering reminder, right? Uh, It's a plea to share the gospel with those who don't know him, right? And then lastly, you know, Peter finishes up in verse 19, and he tells those who are suffering to do what? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. You know, I guess the only thing, I, you know, I want to point out is that phrase, while doing good. You know, a few weeks ago, I suggested to everybody's minds that the complexity of evil in this world uh, is, is way beyond anything we can understand. And Peter is a strategy for how we're supposed to live this life in a world hostile to the faith. But Peter never gets wrapped up in the complexity of evil. He never becomes obsessed with, you know, Nero's every policy. He doesn't get obsessed with all of the demonic forces in reality. He accepts it as real. And what he does is he says, focus, though, on doing good. Focus on being like Christ, right? That's real. It's there. And it's worse than you think. And yet, what we should be spending our time and energy on is doing good, being a faithful presence in each other's lives and in our communities, right? Um, It's a positive plan for life, not just a reactive plan, right? So how many of us, you know, how many in the church need to hear that? You know, we need to focus on doing good. So all that to say, um, friends, I hope you met with the doctor, the Holy Spirit this morning, uh, what, no matter what you're suffering, I hope you felt his hand on your knee, that this is bad news, we are going to suffer, but the Spirit is with you in it. And, uh, you know, I'll just finish with this. You know, this past week, you know, I saw this wonderful sign uh, outside of Jacksonville, and uh, you know what it said? I love it. It was, a little, it was kind of pithy. It said, uh, turn off turn off the cable TV and love your neighbor. <laughs> I love that. And I think that's where sort of Peter ends this passage. Let those who suffer. According to God's will, entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. You know, turn off the news, love your neighbor, and do it not because I'm telling you, but because you know that you are beloved. Let's pray. Now, Father, we lift up those who are suffering in our community and in our valley. And Lord, we also lift up their spouses and their family members who are also carrying those burdens. And Lord, we lift up your church. Lord, we pray that we would suffer according to your will. Lord, in that many people this year in our own congregation would profess faith in your son, Jesus Christ, would declare that Jesus is Lord and nothing else. Father, we pray for baptisms here and in every church in our valley. Lord, we pray for strength for the days ahead. And Lord, we look forward to your return when you will make all things new. I thank you that you give us everything that we need for this life. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.